Hello and welcome to Demo Tapes, a weekly music podcast which hits rewind on the careers of some of the world's biggest bands to reminisce about their breakout moments. I'm Rick Martin and this, my co-host on this trip down memory lane, is Sarah Kemp. It's Sarah Jane Kemp, thanks Rick. I thought we got over that one last time. Oh sorry, yeah, you've, you've added, you, you've, you've done that kind of classic, uh, adding another name into your name. Because my name is Sarah Jane Kemp. But is it, hy- is it hyphenated Sarah Jane? Or yeah. Or is it, is well, it know, middle name Sarah Jane? Because otherwise I'm Rick James Martin. I mean, does oh, that sound like James Martin. Oh my God, so you are Ricky Martin and James Martin. You've and, really had a bad run, haven't you, and with Rick these James nicknames? As Rick well. James. That's a cool one. <laughs> I'd prefer that one. If, if, you, if we're going to go with one, let's go with Rick James. So I'm finally glad you've called me your co-host as opposed to co-pilot because we are equal uh, and that does suggest that we're equal but you know we've been through it over the past few weeks whether I'm your Robin to your Batman or your Lennon to McCartney or Morrissey tomorrow my favourite which was Meg to Jack and I'm Jack which we, we you know I'm the leader. definitely the, the leader the more no not necessarily just the more talented one um, but maybe you know a new one to throw into the mix um, you know am I your Mick to the Keith or, or the opposite way around I think I'd rather be Keith Richards than Mick Jagger I've always this, this is one of the eternal arguments, isn't it? Would you rather be Keith or Mick? You know? Well, I think I'd rather be Mick, so I think we're, we're finally agreeing on something there. So you're kind of the flamboyant um, kind of front person for it, whereas I'm the cool one on guitar. I like to wear purple trousers and strut around the stage, yeah. But, uh, but anyway, we're, we're digressing here. Uh, thanks for downloading, streaming, or kind of however you're getting this episode. Uh, you know, we're now in quite a few places. We're on iTunes, we're in the Apple Podcast app, uh, we're on Spotify, and also Audio Boom. But kind of however you've stumbled uh, across this podcast um, and decided to join us down memory lane, you know, thanks for downloading. We should kick into what, what, what are we talking about this week, Sarah? Yeah, so I think this is a good one to follow on from last time because Azealia Banks was talking about her love of indie music. Um, now, I don't think she specifically mentioned the Libertines, but I'm pretty sure that they were probably f- kind of kind of high up there on her, her kind of chart. Um, but yeah, so I, I'm really, really, really excited about this one. Um, probably a bit too excited because this is a band that kind of really defined our the start of our music careers I guess we could say that even you know we we like music before we even heard of this band and before they even formed but this was really kind of the scene that kind of enveloped them was the thing that really kick-started everything yeah, I think for, that's for fair, both yeah. of us um so yes without further ado to, to reveal who it is it is uh, the Libertines and I mean, they're probably the most important British band of the last 20 years, aren't they? And, you know, we're not going to every week try and claim that every band we're talking about this week is the most important. But, um, you know, obviously we talked about Arctic Monkeys and they've outsold them in terms of record sales. And, but were they as much of a cultural phenomenon as the Libertines? I do think the Libertines are one of those bands that, for, certainly for British guitar music, kind of changed the direction of everything. You know, you had Britpop in the mid to late um, 90s. You kind of had that time in the sort of late 90s, early noughties where new metal kind of took over and everyone seemed to be into into stuff like you know Limp Biscuit and Linkin Park <laughs> and terrible stuff like that oh, and damn I actually had a day where I, uh, those days where I actually quite liked Limp Biscuit. well I, I quite liked Slipknot but they were one of the better bands of that I'm era I feel but, 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 but anyway you know I, I think um, you know the way that they came in during a real kind of lull for guitar music and really gave Music kind of a shot in the arm, um, and they kind slight of pun intended. Yeah, oh, oh yeah, but they really, I think they redefined. Um, they were they were very art school and and very kind of bringing. It was the not the norm into the norm. So they were they were giving people who were probably a little bit weird, a bit kooky, and a bit 
you know different let's say uh, an opportunity to actually get together and 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 kind of unite over something that was really really good unite over wearing military jackets i guess yeah i mean i remember the first time i saw them on that they'd been to the enemy awards and i remember seeing them dressed up and and seeing an interview with p and carl and just the, the, the way that they used to talk it was also kind of um, fantastical and very. It's, it's like they were living. In, well, they were living in a fantasy land, and it really drew people in. Just the way the charisma that they they just managed to, you know, they were talking about all of these these things within their songs, which didn't really mean anything to a lot of people, but ended up meaning a lot to a lot of people. If yeah, that makes I think, sense, that's a good way of putting it. And I think um, to kind of underline what we're going to do in this episode of the podcast. I mean, the Libertines. Frankly, you could start a whole podcast series on and, and probably you know not get bored after 20 episodes because there's so much to go at. So what we really want to go into today is is their early days. You know, I think what people maybe don't realize, realize about the Libertines is as much as they kind of burst onto the scene in, in sort of 2002 and the early noughties and came to define that era, they'd actually been going three or four years uh, before that. Um, I think that's a really interesting kind of story to start to explore mm. um, and as early as 1997 because actually I mean I was 11 then that's I, I was young but I, I don't think I, I can't even remember what date I, I first heard them um, but it definitely wasn't that at that point but they were they were doing a lot before they even kind of burst onto the scene in a big way I think they were we're going to talk about it later but they were very much involved in the, the London scene before they even started and then I think they kind of built their network around the three or four years before, in, in the time before they kind of launched to the masses as it were exactly and, and i think um we're not going to be alone on this kind of ramble down memory lane we have got another special guest this week Re- really um really excited actually to have him on so he's, he's anthony thornton who uh, he often gets touted as the libertine's official biographer if such a thing exists but basically he's a former enemy journalist like myself who wrote a really celebrated book on the band uh, called bound together uh, that was published in 2006 so really there's no better person in my view especially because if you suppose if you spoke to pete and carl and tried to dig into their memories they probably wouldn't be able to remember themselves there's no better person really <laughs> to speak to about those kind of early stages of of the band we're talking from the point that pete and carl met through uh, uh pete's sister amy, amy joe in london in kind of the late 90s right through to the point where they get a record deal with rough trade in 2001 2002 so that's so we'll be going on to that um a little bit later on but i think first it's it's kind of um it's worth us kind of kicking off by just talking about our memories of the time, our memories of the emergence um, of, of the Libertines. And, and what, what was it, Sarah, I think, when you first saw them that that, that kind of turned your head a little bit? What, what was it that, that excited you when you first saw or heard or heard the Libertines? Yeah, and I think that the first time I saw them was on the enemy show on TV. And, and I was kind of encapsulated in their, their fantasy, really, and just thought... Wow, I want to go and see this band. Like, what are they all about? So they came to Nottingham, um, and at the time I was writing for a small fanzine. Um, I can't even remember what it was called now, but it was just a Nottingham fanzine of, of, of bands. No, no, but everyone used to meet at the Left Lion. If anyone doesn't know what that is, it's um, there's two big lion statues in the Market Square in Nottingham, and um, everyone if you used to go to town before mobile phones used to go and say, oh, "I'll meet you in town at midday at the Left Lion." <laughs> I never a... knew that's why it was called Left because obviously really? I lived in Nottingham and I saw Left Lion magazine. Yeah, I assumed it was something political. No, no, no. It's literally just that's where you used to meet at the Left Lion. Learn something new every there day. There we go. Yeah. So no, it wasn't Left Lion, but I'll I'll, I'll dig it out and, and try and see because we are going to do another podcast and and I do have a. 
a good story for that one but I'll dig it out um but yeah so I used to write for for that and they were playing and I thought I'd had a few double vodka uh sodas in the bar beforehand um around the corner at the rescue rooms and I was with my friend and I just suddenly thought I want to interview the band and she was like what are you talking about you can't you're not you I don't even I think we had tickets or I, there are a few people and she said well but we're on you know we're, we're having a drink and I said no and I spotted a pile of magazines that my article was in on the other side of the bar and I, I, I kind of I kind of uh, strolled over there picked them all up like literally picked up every single copy I think I had about 20 or 30 copies in my hand and thought right this is it I'm going so off I off I trotted outside the rescue rooms back to the round to the backstage bit of Rock City so if anyone knows Rock City it's a, it's quite an easy venue to go and meet the band afterwards because there's a car park outside the backstage bit which kind of is enters onto the the main road that everyone has to go down um, it's not very secluded. So off I toddled and uh, yeah, so I, I got there and I s- s- said to this random man, yeah, is anyone there? I'm a, I'm a, I'm a journalist. I really want to interview the band. And he, and he was like, um, who are you? Gave him my ID, showed him the article, just kind of proved that it was me that had written this article. And he said, um, stay there, stay there for a bit. I was like, okay, yeah, fine. So I waited there with my, my friend. But by this time, my friend Ross had come, and Ross was um, Ross Miles is a very, very amazing guy, and kind of got me into the Franz Ferdinand scene actually as well. And we were stood there waiting, and he was like, "Come on, Sarah, let's go into the gig. Like, we're we're going to be late." I was like, "No, no, 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 I just want to see what happens." Um, anyway, about half an hour later, uh, this guy kind of emerges and goes, "Come in." So we follow him in and we're going bound up the back corridors. But before this actually he had said to me, he's like, you're not going to get to speak to Pete or Carl. I was like, that's fine. I don't care. I just want to interview somebody. Um, so off we go into this uh, dressing room and, I, and the door kind of opens. And, and I'm drunk, by the way. I'm, I'm like an 18, 17, 18 year old college student has got no experience whatsoever in doing any form of interviewing mm. um you still haven't now uh still well not a lot more than i had back at that point can i tell you um and he walked into the room and i thought oh no looked and there's pete stood up and he comes over to me and he goes hello nice to meet you i'm peter in his very quiet voice and i just go, i go to pieces because i'm thinking i'm drunk i've done i've not got a pen i've not got any paper it's before phones were around and i sat down and he went so hi welcome and was very very kind and and, and lovely and, and i said um excuse me does it does anybody have a pen <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then i went uh, no but we've got and some, some heroin and some paper and there's i think it was his manager literally look gave me the dark like the the the, the worst look ever um and i kind of ruffled around some places and kind of shoved a pen in my hand and went no i've not got any paper so i had to get one of the magazines opened it up and um, funnily enough Pete was on the cover of this magazine um, so I kind of had to open it up to my article of which I can't remember what, who I'd written it about but I had to write over the, so, so it's kind of illegible I've still got it now, you can't read anything I've written hmm. so I got it uh, and then the next thing that happened is he was Pete sat right next to me and I, and, um, I was a very innocent girl back in these days and he, he, he just got this piece of tin foil out and I was like Right, he brought some potato salad. Or brought some right? potato salad with him. Yeah, and he started eating it right next to me. <laughs> <laughs> you can all imagine what I'm talking about, guys. Um, so you know, seventeen-year-old Sarah Jane Kemp <laughs> didn't really know what was going on. So I think the only thing I can remember from that interview, the the thing that really stuck out in my head was I asked him a question which basically said, "Do you like the enemy?" Um, but I think it was in different words than that, and he said. Yeah, it's all right, I suppose, when you haven't got any toilet roll in the house and you can use it to wipe your bum. (laughs) (laughs) And I just went, 
okay um right okay thanks thanks guys that was really interesting what a scoop. like what <laughs> a scoop um so yeah off, i left the room uh kind of on a high probably quite literally actually um because I was really, it was such a really exciting thing for me. And I remember going to the gig and kind of pogoing around and thinking, what the hell just happened? And I'm actually, and it's a really embarrassed, I'm almost embarrassed to tell the story because of my naive, innocent 17 year old self, but um, what a story to have and what a kind of, it made me realize that I need to actually kind of work on my my interviewing skills and no but not not many 17 year olds are finding themselves backstage at gigs are they <laughs> not really and I just don't know I don't know why I even thought it was I used to do this all the time I just used to go and be like I want to go and meet them or I wanted to go and do this but then when I get there I'd go oh no I don't actually know I don't know what I'm meant to say I'm, just, I'm here but oh god so hmm. I, I, I got myself into some really awful situations at some point which probably kind of explains sometimes why I don't really like being in social situations <laughs> because I've, I've like forced myself into some bad ones. In, this this in is past. turning into therapy. Isn't yeah, it? this is turning into therapy. No, I mean it's good. It's all it's all good. Um yeah, but yeah, what what a story. But yeah, so that's that's the first time I saw them. How about you? So I do remember them emerging um in 2002. They're one of those names that you kind of kept seeing in in kind of the smaller reviews in enemy, but they really kind of exploded for me when they had uh, a cover in the summer of 2002. So this was just before I was starting to write for Enemy, so I started in October 2002, and this must have been kind of June, July, I think it was June, because the the, the feature that was written around was they had just been on the May Day riots in 2002, mm -hmm. the actual opening of the feature, and we have linked, put a link in the uh, Twitter account of, of, of Demo Tapes. We have, and if, if you haven't read feature. it, it's bloody, I remember reading this first time around, and I think it was around about the same time as well, and just being like, I even reread it again today before we came on this, and I felt my heart was racing. It, they really take you on this journey to somewhere that no other band really can I think. It was a masterclass in music writing for me from a journalistic point of view mm. what, what James Oldham who was actually the guy who uh, brought me through at Enemy and, and gave me my first reviews and, and gave me the, the fateful phone call to say we'd like to work for, for Enemy back in 2002 but yeah it was a great feature we've linked to that we suggest you go and kind of have a read of that and then What a Waster came out uh, that summer their debut <laughs> single still pretty much my favourite Libertines track um, yeah. again just because of the the absolute attitude of it yeah. I think lyrically it was brilliant um, the guitars sounded brilliant the production on it but Bernard Butler from Suede produced it um, I don't think for me they've ever really captured uh, the kind of energy of, of, of their live gigs in a song better than they have in that in that track and even little things I love the drum sound there's a drum sound about I think 90 seconds in uh, kind of a drum fill between the chorus and the verse and even just that little bit I'm probably more excited by hearing that than I am all whole kind of careers of, of other bands mm. and obviously after their debut single uh, they kind of followed with a really great run of singles that summer so you had Up the Bracket which went on to become the name of the debut album Time for Heroes which was actually about the May Day riots that they were talking mm. about in the enemy interview and then the fourth single Don't Look Back Into the Sun which was a mix of an Oasis song um, don't Look Back in Anger and a Velvet Underground song, um, Who Loves the Sun. I think it was Who Loves the Sun. It was one of the Velvet Underground songs. Sure, I didn't actually know that fact. Yeah, well, there you go. Wow. There you go. Um, makes so much sense now you see it written down. And, you know, and, and even the videos for some of those songs were quite iconic. You know, in the Don't Look Back Into the Sun video, they were going around HMV buying their own records. Then there was um, the Up the Bracket video where they had the Queens of Noise, famously, who went on to become mm, DJs around them. London. Really they were in them. that video. And one of them now manages Florence Welch. Mm -hmm. That's kind of what she does now. Um, 
so I guess yeah, that 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 was what kind of initially struck me was just the quality of the music and just how fun um, they were in interviews. But I think probably at this point, it's 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 a good time to kind of hand over to the interview with uh, with Anthony Thornton. Yeah, so you you went and did this a couple of weeks ago, didn't you? In a in a pub in uh, quite ironically just around the corner from Albion Road. Is it Albion Road? Where Albion they, Road, Albion yeah, Road, Newington, they, yeah, yeah. Stoke Newington. So yeah, what what did you guys talk about? I mean, we're going to listen to it in a second, but just give us a, a brief overview, and then we'll we'll get into the interview. Yeah, so I mean, Ant- the, the main reason I went to speak to Anthony, aside from the fact that we you know we knew each other years ago when I started out in the enemy, was that he'd written that celebrated book bound together if you haven't read that please do go it's still available on amazon please do go and go and have a, have a read of that if you're a libertines fan because it is the kind of ultimate kind of biography not just because of the words actually but because of the photos as well so mm. roger Sargent, who uh was i would say he wrote he took photos for the enemy but he was basically the libertines official photographer every page of text for every page of text there is a page of images you know often in music books and i said this to anthony in the interview often music books you get you know your standard 200 pages and then in the middle there's maybe four or five pages of photos that's not how this was was worked at all it's it's a real kind of a real kind of beautiful almost music artifact i guess um so i really wanted to talk through not just um the kind of beginning stage of the libertines but also uh, kind of how the book came about and how he kind of earned their trust to the point that they they approve right you know him writing a a biography um and i think as you'll hear you know a little later on this may be not be the kind of the end of the story for for Anthony and, and the Libertines, and maybe we'll be reading uh, sort of more further down the line. So now, without further ado, um, here's Anthony Thornton talking on the beginning stages of the Libertines. Grant, so I mean, I get, the first time I saw they were playing uh, at the Monarch in Camden, uh, it was they were, on a, they were supporting the Vines for the Enemy 5.0 tour, which is it's called a 5.0 tour because Steve Sutherland didn't want to admit the Enemy was 50 years old, so he called it a 5.0 tour. Which is a bit mad, mm. um, and I was there to see the vines. I have to say, I wasn't there. To, I wasn't there to see the libertines. And they came on, uh, and they would. They would. They were just phenomenal. They would. They would just uh, this energy about itself for two. And I was do. I was kind of looking, going, trying to work out who was the lead, who was the lead singer, and of course mm. they were kind of both the lead singer really. Um, but absolutely loved him. Was knocked out by him so much so that me and uh, my girlfriend um, decided to take the following day off and drive to Bristol to see him play in Louisiana, mm. uh, which I know is a bit mad. I'm a music journalist. So it's a good day out out of work, go and see a band play. I think most people would achieve that as part of the job, wouldn't they? <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it was kind of like. I knew that I, I wouldn't be able to like I wouldn't be able to review them or, or anything like that because the review had already been done. But it's big. Um, James Oldham had done a big piece at Cherry Jam, which was kind of a, a big initial piece. Uh, and then Louisiana was even better, which was just incredible because it came dancing through the audience. So I've never I've never seen a band just kind of just dancing and just pushing away through the audience and like, like, like we're going to own the place and this is the support band as well it's not the main band um, and they were even better they were, they were even better so like that whole kind of idiocy of going of driving 200 miles to go and see a band just was the right thing to do hmm. <laughs> and it was and that was kind of it it kind of it just fell fell from completely they were just brilliant 
Um, and bear in mind, I, I joined Enemy in '98, and it would have been now been 2002, and I had a pretty good run at Enemy. It, been good and I knew the average life expectancy for an enemy journalist was about three years and so I was kind of, I was already thinking am I, you know am I too old for this shit um, and then this band happened and kind of all everything that I'd done up to then which had been lots of stuff around Radiohead and, and stuff that would be a band, Sigurosa and it all been brilliant but it not been it not had the impact. It not had it not been a cultural bomb, which is what um, the libertines felt like they could be. Mm. Um, so I, I was I was always interested in, in music and what it could do, not just music, the music itself, but also what it represented outside of that. So what it represented in terms of fashion, how people thought, and what and what they could do. And I guess a lot of that came later, and it kind of. I remember having a conversation with Roger Sargent, a photographer, who took photographs and band together the book. They were in a cab, and, and it was just after they played a gig in the house. I, I just remember saying to Roger really clearly, we don't know how good they are yet. Um, and it, it, so it, we thought we would grab the tiger by the tail, and they were going to be absolutely enormous, and the biggest thing of the noise. That's what mm. kind of what we thought, and it was just incredible to see it happening there's a tribalism word for enemy even when I was there where you would you'd put your chips on a band and you would attach yourself to that band wouldn't you and putting your chips on is absolutely right you would stake your reputation on a band and if it came off and you would fight for that obviously and if it came off great but if it didn't you know you were labelled as the person who'd backed you know insert terrible yeah terrible person who'd backed terrorists exactly exactly and God help us! Nobody wanted to be that person. Uh, it was tribal, and it, and it was, uh, you know, it was, it was lots of fighting and people struggling to get their band in, which you, which obviously you know about. I mean, so you pick your sides, and also it was it was partisan as well. I think there was a point where you people would actually go out of a way to dislike a band because they hadn't been there at the beginning. I mean, the interesting thing about uh, about the libertines and an enemy is how, in in popular imagination, there's this idea that enemy backed them one hundred percent from the start and kind of went overboard on them and everybody loved them and we were all wearing guardsmen's jackets in, in the office and things like that. Was that actually what? In reality, uh, there's James Oldham there at the beginning who uh, left to form record label called Luke. Called Luke. Uh, and then there was me, and then uh, later on there was um, Jamie Fullerton, Matt Wilkinson, and yourself. But that was kind of it. You know, there was lots of people who just kind of rolled their eyes and couldn't, couldn't stand. Um, it's interesting you say that you know it was two thousand and two when you first went to see them. You've been on the enemy since ninety eight, and yet yeah. the libs have been gigging around London since uh, since nineteen ninety seven. And this is obviously something that you cover quite extensively in, in, in Bound Together. Um, so I, I guess it'd be good to kind of rewind a little bit back on, on their career and I guess reflect on or maybe why it took them, you know, so long. Obviously, you know, Pete and Carl met through Pete's sister, Amy Jo. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, who was living in London at the time. Um, and I, I think this is better in your words. How, how what, what do you think created that bond between, between Pete and Carl? I think that there was 
a kind of, there was a shared love of um, of a kind of nostalgia for Britishness. Uh, it's really weird talking about this now in light, in light of what's happened in the last two years, but because um, Morrissey's got a nostalgia for yeah, a share he, he has yes, but um, but but this was definitely a romantic and a kind of that kind of Hancock thing and and the war poets um, and they found each other and I think and it's funny you say mention Morrissey because. Um, Pete was looking for his ma, I think. Pete had this idea that he was he was Morrison, he wanted wanted Ma and would um find them. And in actual fact they they're both a bit of both. They're both guitarists and songwriters mm-hmm. and lyricists. Um But they, you know, it was it was Nigeria and uh, it was a high watermark of um of kind of drum and bass and uh New metal and new well, new metal was was around the corner in '98. It hadn't hadn't fortunately it hadn't happened yet. But it was definitely it was it was kind of age of the dance super clubs, mm. and um, it, it, two guys who wanted to make uh, brilliant guitar music, which was uh, so like so unfashionable because Britpop had gone down and uh, taken everybody with it, apart from um, Blur, who obviously stopped being a Britpop band. And Oasis, who were just so enormous, they couldn't. Think of them. Oasis became a genre in itself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, even in, I remember Oasis for Oasis came out in '94. In '98, '99, I was still going out to Camden and seeing bands who were trying to be Oasis. It was nuts. It was just like oh, the influence of Oasis was so big when it basically had stopped guitar music from changing for years. Um, but they want they wanted to do something else. They want to do something different, um, and they did it. and And it kind of put a lie to that thing which I'd always assumed, which was that if a band was good enough, somebody would find them and somebody would put their record. On. And it just didn't happen. It really mm. genuinely didn't happen. Um, and we, you know, they gigged away. They had Mr. Rascox, the who would have been about. 50-something. 54. Right. Paul Dufour, I think we're Thank talking you. about Paul here. Dufour, An yes. old jazz drummer. Uh, a, and a brilliant drummer. He, uh, and he was he was doing his thing. And they, and they cut a load of demos. And Roger Morton started managing them, who was an enemy journalist. Um, and But the weird thing about it, they were fully formed. They were absolutely right. You listen to those demos now, they are incredible. They are absolutely... Uh, on the nose, they are a fully formed band. This isn't the kind of like you often listen to demos of bands. They're kind of you know they sound a bit borrowed and they're do, doing um, things which are clearly inspired by other people. This is fully formed, um, and we, you know, as a kind of industry, music industry, and that includes NME. We dropped the ball. I mean, something happened. We should that the band should have become big then. There's um, strokes that, that kind of brought, brought back together. They kind of, and it was, they, they had a new, um, they had a new manager, Banny, who was, was really driven. And uh, base, they, they went to the sort of Strokes Play Heaven, which is kind of a, a legendary Strokes gig. They snuck into the after show at Heaven, and they kind of went, we could. We could do this. We could. Uh, we could actually do this. And they, 
and so it was, that was when Plan A was born. Plan A was that we're going to get the band back together and we're going to make it happen and we're going to look at uh, the Strokes and um, be inspired by them. And so we won't do uh, beautiful songs about um, England anymore. We will do fast, punky uh, songs about Britain. We'll swap the suits for another jacket. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, uh, so essentially, they have the Beatles in reverse. <laughs> and um, and yeah, around this time, John Hassel rejoins the band. Am I right? Because he right. left. Yeah, that's right, John. John because um, it, it was kind of inevitable, really, just because he was part part of the band, the right thing to do. And and Gary joined then, who because uh, Banny, who worked at. Uh, Warner's, the music company, uh, knew him through through a friend, and it just all it just clicked. And you know, I mean, if you look at them, I'm just a photogenic bunch of so and sos. Just about four of them just worked together brilliantly in terms of photography. But then, in terms of music, it just clicked, and then that was it. Off they went. We fast forwarded past the probably the myth of Johnny Burrell being a well, it isn't a myth. It was true because they've 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 recently, I say recently, last year they claimed that it that he never was in the band. Whereas reading your book, I think it's quite clear that for a period he he very much was. But he didn't he fuck them off to go and play with Alabama Three? Is that right? That's right. Um, yeah, in fact, it was it wasn't to play with them. It was going to see them. I think. <laughs> okay. So, um, you know, digging through your book, and that's obviously something that I've, I've done ahead of recording this podcast. There's all sorts of. Um, Kind of interesting little stories. For example, that the band played an old people's home. Yeah, yeah. Apparently, although you have to bear in mind, there's a lot of stuff made up, and how much of it is true? You know, there's the cold thing about they said they were rent boys, which is probably not true. Might be true, right? but I think um, if it was, I don't think anything ever happened. Um, mm. You've got to define the lines of what a rent boy actually is. Haven't you? Yeah, exactly. There's not, there's not a strict job description. No, no, you're right. But <laughs> I think. What was great about them was they were always willing to mythologise from the very moment. I, mean, I guess because they had, because they because they hadn't come through that first time. When when the opportunity came, they seized it with both hands, and they kind of were instantly mythologising themselves um, and, w- and wanting to make the most of it. But in fairness, you know that mythologising was there from the very beginning, even when they weren't. Famous, even when they were squatting just down the road from here. Um, and in terms of, I mean, signing to Rough Trade, that wasn't a kind of um, a kind of straightforward process. James Endicott came down to see him at Rhythm Factory. James <laughs> yeah. Endicott being one of the A and R's at, yeah. at um, Rough and that Trade, absolute legend, James Endicott. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, it's just it's just absolute classic uh, libertines because there's always. Uh, Romanticism. There's unfortunately quite often tragedy, but there's always comedy, and it's just like you've just been spoken to. You've just spoken to like the guy who signed the Strokes. It's going well. Got no demos apart from one with the old singer on it. So you send that to him. It's just like nuts. It's Mm. absolutely nuts. But fortunately, uh, James James looked through it and carried carried on. Which probably shows what vision he's got. Very good. 
And eventually they did sign to Rough Trade in, in 2001 after playing a showcase with Jeff Travis, I believe. Yes. Head of, head of Rough Trade. And, and Jeff loved them. Jeff absolutely loved them. Well, he, he always had an eye for that band that could become more than just a band. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of... I mean, Jeff, Jeff's very smart and he's got great ears and, and Jeanette as well. Um, you know, un- unbelievably talented, unbelievably skilled. Um they signed him and uh, and I think uh, they walked back they walked back from Rough Trade all the way back which is a long way because Rough Trade is over in um, Notting Hill so they walked about must be about 10 miles or something um, but I did, one thing I do know is that the money they, the advance they got they kept in the fridge for some reason I said, I'm not <laughs> quite entirely sure what they kept in the fridge in the album rooms um over in Bethnal Green, because they shared a flat, Pete and Carl, which is um, you know, quite legendary now. The album rooms. I mean, it's a place where they play gigs. They invited people over to to their their place via the internet. Uh, it sort of been two thousand and two, two thousand and three, and um, this is the world of Libertines.org. It is, yeah, but which uh, really was a world in itself. It, 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 it was. It was Extraordinary. They were they were headlining Restoria one minute and, and invited people to come over to Gaff to, to see a gig the next. Why would anybody think this is true? A band which had headlined Restoria would invite people over to a house. It's just can't be true. So a lot of people didn't even go. Um, fortunately, I did. I was going to say you one of those who who did. So I guess I guess set the scene for us a little bit. And you went a few times, but I guess yeah. you can sum up you know a night where you've perhaps been to a gig whether it's the libs or someone else click up dot org i imagine you probably can't do that on your phone at the time no you but you could do it on phone yeah. you'd have to probably go and look on your laptop <laughs> it was here and then your chunky desktop computer yeah and then you'd head down to the albion room so yeah. just kind of paint the picture i guess well i mean that that first time it was one of those things they were so good and they'd you'd heard that they might be doing this um you'd read it and it, emails got sent around because this was pre-Facebook this was um, and you would you would uh, you would just get, well the first time you just didn't even know if it was true or not but it was worth going down just on just on the off chance um, and, I, and as I said I was nuts about them I thought I thought they were great and they were original and they were different and they were doing something nobody else was doing um and I, I, I went, uh, and when I got there, their, their neighbour was um, very unhappy because they played too, they played their music too loud, and she was, she had a, a claw hammer in her hand. Uh, she was, and she was trying to shut down the party, um, but which was quite scary, but so this was this was the scene you were met with. Yeah, that's right. What, was, uh, a crazy with a claw hammer. Yeah, basically, just because they they played one too many parties, and this this was something she did not want to happen. Um, and uh, despite that, I wasn't scared off. I, I kind of paid my tenor on the door and, and went in. Um, uh, and and it was, we're inside, and there was like I don't know twenty twenty. 25 people inside, 25 fans who all kind of done this thing. And there's Pete and Carl and John 
and they're you know through kind of playing through shitty practice apps but they're just playing and entertaining and and it's nobody had done this it was just mad it was like why you know nobody did this and we were in their flat they were playing songs people were shouting out um uh shouting out requests but i mean i think that the one thing and one common thing in that room is nobody actually believed it was happening it was really mm. it was quite peculiar kind of surreal so i guess what i want to pick up a little bit is you know you you're in you've been let into the inner circle in yeah. way, but not in a maybe in the way that you know other enemy journalists we get invited on the tour bus this is literally because you've been on libertines.org you've seen the invite yeah. you've gone along how long did it take before they were aware that you were a journal writing for for enemy because obviously in that sort of small space i imagine you got to know them fairly quickly yeah i was it it, it was weird because of libertines.org and because they were, they were fans it was kind of a real leveling of I guess what you would have called a hierarchical structure, whereas normally there's a kind of no fans at, at the bottom, and then there's kind of record company people, and then there's you know there's journalists, and then there's the band, and kind of very neat kind of tiered thing. It was just it was much flatter. Everybody everybody was on the same level, um, and that was very conscious by the band, but um, uh, wanted to make it as open and. Um, democratic, I guess, as possible. So, you know, I was a fan and journalist. Um, although that, later on, that there's problems in that, which I should talk about later. Um, and so, I, you know, I was turning up to see them, and writing about them as appropriate. Um, it's funny, but, um, you know, the Albion Rooms gig made page seven, I think, of the enemy. Hmm. Kind of, so a kind of idea that enemy went mad for them to begin with is kind of not true. It was we had a photograph and a short piece, but that was it. Um, but yeah, I, I, I got to know them um, just just by being there. So I, I guess I was kind of in the inner circle, but no, probably I could be no more or less than than some of the people on Libertines Talk. It just happened that I wrote about them as well. Um, and I think there was a weird tension there as well, because obviously a lot, a lot of people wanted to have the band for themselves and didn't want Enemy writing about them. So uh, I think... Which is classic Enemy journalist territory, isn't it? Yeah. You think, you think you're going to be the toast of, <laughs> of a band's uh, kind of fan circle and nothing could be far from the truth. No, no, it's just like, why are you, why are you letting everybody know about it? There, there was a funny incident later on, which was because I'd written about them quite a lot and was writing about interesting stuff. And then um, they released the Baby Shambles Sessions. That was put out in May of one year. May of 2003, I think. Yeah, I think that sounds about right. Um, and org was kind of alive with this because, it. Were, I mean, there were like dozens and dozens of, of Libertines tracks on it. Um, which Pete had given to a fan, the fan had uploaded, and everybody was going, you know, this is stuff that would end up on the second album. It was a really, really big deal. Uh, and I don't, I can't think of a, of a band that have done it since, that kind of scale of, we are about to record this, and here is everything. Uh, plus, you know, messing about in the studio and um, things. And on Libertines.org, a few people going, Enemy haven't written about it. They've written about other things. They've written about bands they played 
written about times they've played in um, houses and secret gigs, but they've not written about this. Why not? Why, what, what is the reason I haven't written about it? The reason was I'd gone on holiday for two weeks. <laughs> and I hadn't seen it. that you would take a break. <laughs> yeah. And I hadn't seen it, and that's why... Uh, so that's not on your handover notes to send, send someone else from the office down to the squat. Well, but, but um, it shows you that the enemy uh, didn't have a, you know, they didn't have somebody else to do it. It was kind of like, it was, our person in the, in the Libertines camp is Anthony. Um, and so, yeah, we were, enemy, we were, were late to it because I, I think I was in, in Greece. So, I mean, I guess you kind of um, touched there that, you know, ingratiating yourself early on was fairly simple because you were a fan and, and, yeah. and probably then the penny started to drop down a little bit that you were a journalist at the same time yeah. how, how did that kind of progress and and, uh, and you know did, did a friendship blossom or yeah definitely um, and I think uh, and you bear bear press uh, press man Tony Lincoln from Coalition he was uh, a very good friend very quickly um, and I just through that I mean, I just knew that um, I liked the band and uh, as a result of that, things worked out. But then I got to know them and, and uh, all four of them were just really nice and really good. And I had quite a close bond with, um, definitely with Carl and with Pete as well, but perhaps not to the same degree. Um, also... Uh, Gary, who get on with now still, and, well, and still get on with Carl, and, and John, who, who was a bit, a bit quieter, um, spent quite some good times with John as well. Uh, but in, that, in terms of, you know, I was just, I just was just one of a gang. There was a whole load of us who would turn up to, to every gig. You know, there was me and Roger and just a host of people. People. You know, there's a, there's a kind of whole booking just for people who who were there. Um, but did it reach a point where maybe, you know, uh, the powers of be at enemy, your editors, whatever, start to think, well, you're not going to be writing kind of objectively about this, and, and and you had a choice between being the journal or being the mate. Was there ever that that tension um, or that decision to be that's made? That's a that's a really good question. Um, I mean, I, I have a code, I have a moral code, which which is a bit too grand but I'd let me go with it in that I have, I have a responsibility to the fan first enemy second and uh, the band third and I and everything for me always went throughout prison I would always be on side of the fan because that's what I would expect um, journalists to do and secondly for enemy and, and thirdly for um, for the band so everything I wrote uh, was I, was based on that on that structure and I think I, I had to stay true to it and I think that's, that was the right thing to do and I, if I did it all again I would, I would constantly refer to that um, I think there was uh, in, in NME there was like, it it was fairly I mean like, you know it, it was a smart thing to do. I was the person on the inside. I, I wrote quite a lot about them. I wrote most of the news stories. I, what I didn't do was write everything about them, which would have been mad. 
uh, and it was and it was quite right. But other people did interviews as well because um, people need a different point of view. Um, so no, I, I I think you know, we, and a magazine needed that objectivity. Well, obviously, enemy was accused of, of rabid fandom in it anyway, but. Um, there must have been things that went on in the flat, in the squats, in the in the rhythm factory that, that maybe didn't make it to print because you probably would have broken their trust. I know certainly in my career there were times of bands that I knew where I had to hold information back from NME to keep up for not not forever but for a while. Yeah, to keep to stay. You know, you look at the long term rather than the short term win. There must have been instances um, there. I, you see. For me, it was always about fans, so I, 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 I didn't have that dilemma. I think um, I always remember there was a story about Keith Cameron went and saw uh, Nirvana um, when the Neutro was being made. This is Keith Cameron, the enemy writer. That's right, Keith Cameron, the enemy writer. And he wrote the story of what he saw, which was an absolute shit show, and it, Nirvana was falling apart. And um, as a result of that, he was kicked out of the inner circle and was not allowed back in again. But he did it for the right reasons. He did it because he 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 needed he wanted and needed the fans to know. And I think um, that that was the same for me. I think um, you can't. You ha- you have to draw lines. Yeah, yes, I'm, I'm friends with somebody, but also I have a I have a job to do. I have a moral as I not to put too fine a point of it. I have a moral duty to the fans, and um, so it was always kind of what what is it that I would want and need to know. Um, so I never would never dwell on salacious things because I didn't think it was relevant. It wasn't relevant. But you, did, but you did say that the relationship with the band did eventually get. I don't think the word you said earlier was difficult, but can maybe complicated. Yeah, it did. It did get complex. I mean, essentially, essentially, well, you're, when they started to break apart, um, it was um, it was heartbreaking, and everybody was seeing it happen. Um, so this would be around the time that. Uh, Pete Burgle Carl's flat. That's right. I to mean, put, I, not to put too far. No, no, which you probably can't. Um, but uh, he, um, Pete was supposed, supposed to be playing a, a gig. Um, I can't remember entirely where. Um, somewhere up in Northwest London in a pub, and he hadn't. It was a no show. He didn't turn up. And then news came through that he'd been arrested, and that's and he'd been arrested. For burgling cold fat, and it was kind of it was, it's, you know. It it didn't seem true. How could it possibly be true? It was insane. In this pub, and I can remember it now. And the word going out, maybe it would have been about thirty or forty people. Um, and, and people kind of it sunk in, and people accepted it, but nobody really, you know, believe it. It was like living in a bad story. Mm. Um, so yeah, things got difficult. Things things got, um, but the, the key for me was to try and be be objective and not to take sides and not to say one thing or the other. Um, 
and so later on there was um interviewed uh uh pete when uh, around the second album and um you know it's had to be as objective as possible but i mean the thing i had as interviewing was i kind of knew all the facts and the kind of it was really useful to know that which I, other people going into interview pete didn't didn't know perhaps weren't aware of everything that had gone on I mean, without being too cynical about it it struck me as one of those bands where if you go in and you know you know you know your hancock's half hour yeah um from your philip larkin poem yeah you know if you uh, if you understand all the reference points, you're already kind of halfway there in terms of getting the story as a journalist. They're yeah. not a band you can go in with five minutes prep. No, I think you're absolutely right. Are you, and you, are you, you, you do need to to um, have done that. But well, equally, well, if, even if you didn't, they would charm you. They, I mean, they were great in, interviewees. You didn't, um, you know. But the great thing about good uh, rock interviewees. Uh, um, is that idiots can make great features out of them. Um, you know, it's the same with Gallagher Brothers and the same with, you know, Ian McCulloch back in the day. It's just like people just, they're just fantastic quote machines. Um, Kasabian, that latterly, I think, one of those quote machines. You could always bank on. Yeah, exactly. Always bank on Kasabian. But whatever you think of the music, you could always bank on it for a quote. Yeah, I mean, I, I, do, I, I think what this world needs now is a few more quotable musicians. But it probably needs a magazine to be quoting them as well. But we won't won't go there yet. I guess where I'm interested to kind of take this now is, you know, um, eventually the idea of a book was conceived, Bound Together. Yes. It was uh, published in 2006. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, Probably, I know know the history of your... I know your publishing history better than you do. I should be your agent. Um, So how how far back were you, you know, how far back were you thinking about the idea of writing? Because I think... You quite clearly, quite early on, um, cottoned on to the fact this 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 was a this was a different band. This was a band that were all about the kind of iconography of rock and roll. That they were an iconic band, yeah. probably in your eyes, far earlier than than than, than most people. So, at what point did the cog start to turn in your head to think this is something I could turn into a book? Um, I think it was uh, like like most good things I've been involved in. It wasn't my idea. It was it was Roger's idea. Uh, Roger, Roger Sargent, yeah, the photographer, and he, he, and it was probably in another one of his taxi journeys, going from somewhere to somewhere else in North London. He said, "You've got, I mean, you've done all the interviews, you've spoken to, them, you've seen them, um, and I've got photographs. Why don't we do a book together?" And it was, it was just, yeah, absolutely, yes, we should do a book together. I mean, apart from anything else, I'm kind of obsessed, and it's probably comes out. Where I write about the Libertines, I'm obsessed with uh, the idea of collaboration. I love the idea of two, three, four, five, six people coming together to make something bigger than themselves. Um, and so, yeah, I, I was com- com- completely bl- uh, blown away by the idea. But um, I didn't know anybody wrote books. It was, <laughs> it was just how direct. How do well, I do you, this? Well, you thing? say that a lot of people in the enemy pitch books. People who work for the enemy would often pitch books. But the publication rate wasn't particularly high. <laughs> no, I guess not. But um, so uh, I was in uh, I was in Sweden and um, I was in Sweden and I saw um, Mick Jones 
from the this is this is probably this is going to hit a curtain floor in a matter. I saw Mick Jones in Sweden. Uh, he was playing a club called Debaser. Uh, I'd met him a couple of times because doing a recording of a second album because he produced the second Libertines album. And he produced What Waste as well. Yeah. No, he, he no, that was Bernard Butler. Butler, Butler did what well, Waster. He did the whole of the first album and the second album. And uh, so we'd got we'd got on quite well during during those sessions. And some so so I'd gone to see him, and he'd spotted me in the crowd, and uh, he and one of his friends had put a pop band and said, "Oh, do you want to come back and see Mick?" And it, uh, which was which was lovely for he'd done that. So I went backstage. I, and Pat Gilbert was there, who uh, a great journalist who writes for Mojo, and he'd written a book about Clash. And I said, just said, Pat, I know you've written a book about Clash. Who's your agent? And he gave me his agent. He gave me just of um, contact details of his agent, and and that was how it started. So the whole thing is thanks to Pat Gilbert. God bless him. Brilliant writer. Still, I didn't know, knew nothing about publishing books. I had, had no idea, and uh, we got there was a there was a little bidding war, which was which is weird. And I remember. Cause it felt like you were in a band. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was kind of, it was kind of like, really, is this all is this all for real? Uh, and it, it was picked up by um, uh, Anthony Hodson. Who was completely sympathetic um, to to the vision we had, and completely got that this wasn't going to be a book like any others. It would had to be beautifully designed with with uh, text and the images complementing each other. I was going to say that's the thing you notice about that book is that you know a lot of rock rock music books. Um, you know, you have the cursory five, you know, probably eight pictures in the middle. Yeah, yeah everyone flicks to first, yeah, and then reads the book afterwards. Bound together, it was you know copy picture, copy picture, copy picture. Oh, it, and it, it, it was it was all down to Antonio. It wouldn't have been such a brilliant thing if it wasn't for it. Um, yeah, yeah. Little Brown completely got it, and uh, it's in a a beautiful kind of hardback square bound. It's, I mean, it's a, it's a thing of beauty, and kind of I I couldn't believe how lucky we were. Is it hard to get the band on board? With doing it, it was. You, I, I, I know, knowing you, I imagine you, you felt you probably had to get them on board. Because yeah, this wasn't a hatchet job. I was very lucky because um, because my worry when I t- spoke to them was they'd, they'd want to uh, they'd want to, to sign it off and to say what it what it said, mm. um, but they were fine about it. They were absolutely fine. About it. I just wrote the damn thing. Um, and did and interviewed um, interviewed them all again uh, to fill in any gaps, um, which are, obviously most of those were kind of pre you know the early days. Um, and spent some you know great times just I uh, interviewed Gary just kind of uh, probably two hundred yards from where we're sitting now in the Blue Lagoon, and he, he was a brilliant interviewee. Um, you know. I, Went around Carl's for for lunch, and um, uh, he made me lunch and did a, another fantastic interview. Um, and 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 Pete was uh, a good interview as, as well. So 
I was surprised at how open we were. I mean, I guess that, you know, I've, I've obviously written quite a lot about them already, so I guess they, they kind of trusted me with the idea of the legacy of the Libertines, so, uh, which is quite good of them. Well, say. they were a band who, who I think understood their, own, understood their own mythology, so therefore I think they were probably waiting for someone. They probably sat there waiting, who's going to write about us? When's it going to happen? <laughs> so they were, probably, they were probably delighted when, when the call came in. I think, uh, I think a good place to kind of, I think, wrap this up would be... Um, you know, you, you've obviously moved on from, from music journalism, but yeah. their story has continued. And in fact, yeah. you know, um, the end of the book certainly wasn't the end of their stories. Is it something you've ever thought about revisiting and and, and, and producing kind of the second half of, of the story? Yeah, I, and I, I and barely a week goes by without somebody saying you really need to write this. Um, I mean, I'd like the the problem is that book. I I think you know. It, no, not to do with me, but I think it's a it's a it's a be- beautiful thing. It's perfect in, in the way it's delivered. I'm not saying it's perfect writing. I'm just saying as a as an artifact, as an object, it's great. Um, but you know, the, the, there's definitely a story there, and it's probably a story I should should revisit. Um, you know, not least because because they've got some incredible things going on with their kind of a whole kind of. Margate adventures and hotels. And, and I was going to ask you about that. I mean, obviously, again, your your career's gone down a different path since since the enemy BFI being a place yeah. you've worked, and uh, you know various kind of publishing jobs and that sort of thing. But um, you know, how closely have you followed their career since? Do you still go and see them live? Uh, <laughs> yeah. What, what did I you do. think of Anthem to Doom Youth? Uh, uh, yes, I still go and see them live. I I, I liked Anthem to Do Doom Youth. I it was um, I had some great moments. Right? really good moments and I think that kind of I want a comeback single but when you know just like, Dunn, you mean. yeah exactly exactly what you know that kind of Pete Pete on the opening vocal Carl coming in I mean it was great it was like classic libertines um, I mean I still see them I go you know it was at Carl's birth, 40th birthday about Two or three months ago, and it was great. Again, it was um, in, a, in a nice hotel in Margate. And, you know, he's great. I consider, consider him to be a good, a good friend. And I see Pete not not so often, but um, it's always good to see. Him. I think I would, and perhaps should write something else about them. I perhaps need to to get it together. Um, but I'm looking forward to seeing what the next album's like. I don't well, this is the thing; they've kind of put a full stop on. I went to see them at Wheels and Fins in Margate, and that that seemed to be a bit of a full stop. And, um, they're you know they're not going to play live again for a while, but they're, they're opening a hotel and they seem to have certainly ingratiate themselves in Margate. You know they had a guy who was a local rapper, Mike Righteous, who uh, if you dig a little bit deeper into his history, they're kind of like a well-known family in Margate. I think his brother's a boxer. Right. So they seem to be setting, setting down roots in Margate. So I almost wonder, do you think there'll be another album? Where, where do you think this is going next? I, I think there will be another album. I think um, what it'll be like, I don't know. Uh, they'll certainly move it forward. But what's interesting, obviously, the last one was out in Bangkok. This is going to be in Margate. It's going to, this is going to be close to home. It's going to be about them. Uh, 
best situation. So I, I think it's going to be a really interesting album. Um, I'm looking forward to it. Because we all are. Uh, Anthony Thornton, th- thanks very much. Cheers, mate. Thank you. Wow, that was I was gripped listening to that. That was really that's really cool. He's a really in, intriguing guy, I think. Um, it was really interested to hear him going into the Margate kind of hotel thing as well, and the fact that you know bit of an exclusive there. That he, he thinks there might be a new album. What do you think? So yeah, I I wasn't really sure. So obviously they played at um, Wheels and Fins. They had that the Sharabang uh, event they did in Margate a few weeks ago. They played live, and I went down to see them. And that was supposed to be a bit of a, a bit of a full stop. And you know, obviously they released their third album um, anthems for doom youth uh, a couple of years ago um and they're one of those bands that a bit like the strokes you know they're not never going to be on a a kind of two-year album cycle you know in fact they've released three albums in what is it no, 15 I was just thinking, years yeah, you know, so now 15, you've said three years, years uh, th- sorry three albums in all those years it does seem crazy compared to some of the other bands that were around about that time and they're still going so they're one of those bands that you would never have expectations to release something new and there's every chance that pete could put out a new Baby Shambles record mm. or a new solo record, or Carl could do something with the Jackals or even reform Dirty Pretty Things, though that's probably unlikely. Um, so uh, I think it's exciting, the thought that they could release something new, and I guess that's the whole point of them building what I think they're calling a hotel, but I suspect is more of kind of a recording space in, uh, in Margate. Who knows, they might invite us there to do a podcast episode one day. Oh, yeah, wouldn't that be good? Yeah. If you're listening, please do. We'd love to come down. Um, but yeah, so I mean, I guess that's 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 a good place to stop this podcast because we want to do a side B on this naturally. Um, and then there's just so much around this scene and this time that we can talk about. So we'll be doing future episodes on around other bands that were around at the same time as well that maybe were inspired by the Libertines or um, kind of worked with them as well, which I'm very excited about. Yeah, and I mean, we're, we're digging in the crates for an archive interview with Pete and Carl, so... Watch this space. Watch this space. Watch this space. So, yeah, um, thanks for listening again. Um, If you haven't listened to the other episodes um, and you you fancy doing that, head over to, as Rick said earlier, we're on iTunes, Spotify and Audio Boom. If you want to have a chat to us or see what's going on on our social media channels, um, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at DemotapesPod. We've also got a Facebook page, which is DemotapesPodcast. And if you want to email us, you can get us on DemotapesPod at gmail.com. Um, but yeah and, and, and if you can leave us a five star rating it really helps um, and yeah I guess thank you again and see you next time we'll see you next week